So I've, I think I've gone two of the last three years. Nice. They got a nice golf course there too. Yep. The the Grizzly. Yep. I shot four. I get out the there every once in a while. Ooh, damn. Oh, did you? That was damn. I, can I? Four I'm under. allowed to lie on the podcast, right? Yeah, I four under, four under par. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, four sure. under, given give or take four to six to eight. Give and take a dozen or two. Next time I'm out there, I'll uh, yeah, a couple yeah, There you go. Well, Why tennis not? players get two shots on every whole hole because the first and second serve. It's a rule that we go by. <laughs> oh, of course. Breakfast balls. Place. Yeah, you get two shots each time, so it's way easier to score it's better. That way. I love that. We should have a tournament that's that where you're allowed second serves. <laughs> yeah, second serves second for serves. golf sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah, next time I'm at the Grizzly, I'll uh, I'll take it in and say to myself, you know, Paul was here, shot four under. Four under mm-hmm. in his four mind. In his around. mind, he was four under. Yeah. Or just engrave <laughs> his name on the wall for him, and then that way, yeah. next time he goes there, it'll just we'll be make, there for him. We'll make believe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So how do you uh, find time to golf with your insanely busy schedule here? Of- uh, I don't play that much. I try to play a lot when I'm here, but I don't play that much. I play, I've played like probably, I would say, 12 rounds in the last 18 months. Wow. And probably eight of them have been here with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Paul is a very talented golfer for how little he <laughs> yeah. plays. He's, a- in, he's a solid eight handicap pretty much every time he plays. And drives the yeah. ball dead straight hits every fairway my agent and he goes back <laughs> his his putting he, he switches back and forth between methodologies sometimes but yeah so do you oh it's not it's it gets boring if you're not it's if you're a sickness not. i believe it is a sickness i'm gonna look in the thesaurus afterwards i believe there's a putting sickness Oh. Haven't figured out what the cure is yet, but looking at your bar back there, I think I may know the answer. <laughs> That's why I keep such a stocked bar yeah. for these occasions. Exactly. <laughs> Little Tito's. <laughs> we do have Tito's. It's nectar, yep. golf nectar. Exactly. Yeah. Welcome to Good Lies Golf. I'm Ryan Sherman. Across from me is Zach Grossman. We also have Brendan Lawson and a very special guest, legendary Bonnick Hall of Famer, Paul Anacone, in the studio tonight with us. So it's a very special episode. We're very excited to have him. And we can't wait to talk all about him and what he's done. Incredible legend in the tennis world. Also a legend in the golf world via Zach Grossman's highly anticipated credentials he's been spitting here and we're just excited to hear the story welcome paul welcome guys i can't believe that i finally snuck. i had to pay zach a lot of cabbage to get on but i finally made it so <laughs> i'm feeling Thank good you. i'm feeling good about myself now i know man it's it's great to have you here i can finally pay rent <laughs> sherman zach make me pay every week yeah, so. <laughs> we we charge Brendan to come on weekly. That's I like it. Part this of the is deal. an expensive room. Well, There's a lot a, of fancy equipment. You need a revenue stream. Got to figure that yeah. out, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we we get through it. Um, Paul, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Such a close friend for so many years, and like a second father, I would say. Boom. You've, you've taught me so much in the sports world. Mentoring, been so generous, kind to me. And for you to come on here, it's really special. So uh, thank thanks, you. Man. No, thanks for having me. I really Agreed. appreciate it. And 
you know, all those kind words that Zach said are, are really heartfelt, but you know what? He's paying the piper now because he has to play golf with me. <laughs> so it's all coming full circle. He thought it was all gravy mm-hmm. until about four or five years ago when every time I came in town, I was like, hey, Zach, let's go play a little golf. And he, the first time he loved it, after that, I think his response was, I like this almost as much as going to the dentist. <laughs> was it something like that? I think it was something no, like that. No, I'm sure he feels oh, man. <laughs> more about that way with me. I'm sure I'm a, I'm a barnacle to him. Uh, we have a good time. No, it's a, it's a massage with you guys. It's not a dental visit. Well, at, at, least, at least you're great at golf. You know, That's where you have the advantage. Legend in my own mind. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Bro- broken numerous course records across the country. As far as you know. Yes. Yeah. Shot a 17 under at Augusta once. Once. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No only, one. Only no one was there because they wanted to play it alone. With only him, once. Only once. Only once, though. <laughs> I need to ask a question. Sure. I mean, I want to know what everyone thought about St. Andrews. I mean, what did you guys take away from the oh, course? Yeah. And we're so used to seeing everything pristine mm. here in the states and. Just the views on TV, it's pretty amazing, huh? What would you guys think? Yeah, I mean, if it were my choice, that would be the course I would jump to play on. Even, I think, over Augusta would be St. Andrews. Such a beautiful, burnt-out layout. All those hidden bunkers, and the cream rose to the top is what happened. You had all the best players in the world at the top of the leaderboard competing for the Claret Jug, and it was a special Sunday. (laughs) Special Sunday, absolutely. Heartbreaking for the Irish fans there, for yeah. Rory, but he he struck the ball well, as as Paul was saying before. Yeah. What do you think about the, that? You know, it's so amazing to me when I look at the comparisons with tennis and golf. I, I you know, for golf, I because I'm a frustrated golfer, I, I just can't imagine what it must feel like to stand over a four-foot putt with that much on the line. Like in tennis, you see, we've I've seen it for so many years, there's center court at Wimbledon, but you're always moving. There's always something to help you relax and loosen up. There's movement. You're reacting to something coming at you. I think, I actually think this is why so many athletes love golf is because especially American athletes, look at how many great American athletes have become golf addicts. It's because they can't believe that they can't hit a little ball, that no one's throwing at him, no one's doing it. It's sitting there. All they have to do is hit it straight. Straight, 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 and then knock it in a little cup. People that have grown up playing basketball and football and baseball in the States, they cannot believe that they can't do that. It sounds so simple. But for me, when I continue my frustrations and then look at the comparisons to tennis, I, I just it's amazing to watch someone try to hit a six-foot putt with that kind of pressure. It's just I can't imagine. I, that was yeah, so well it's funny said. you say that yeah i i actually listened to marty fish a guy i'm sure you're very familiar with uh talk earlier today kind of about that same thing where you know you're so much more active it's such a more active sport in tennis where it's more physical it is mental but he said that you know after playing a round of golf where you're just focused and you have a longer time in between shots you're just more worn out especially mentally after the after playing a round of golf versus a match of tennis. How do you, I mean, yeah. does that ring true to you? It, absolutely. And Marty actually is a good buddy of mine. We, we remember the same club in L.A., and, and uh, he's a great golfer. I can't wait to watch him play this week, uh, 3M. And, and um, it does ring really true. I, I think the interesting thing that I don't understand, and Zach can attest to this, is that when you play golf, I don't know exactly how – what's the best way – 
to concentrate. You know, you're out there for over, you know, we're out there for four hours. Or like tennis, you, you know, it's very simple. There's not a lot of time. It's about 25 seconds between points. So you're always really zeroed in, either being proactive or reactive. Okay. In golf, sure. you hit a ball, then your playing partner hits a ball. Maybe the third guy hits a ball, then you walk down the fair. I mean, there's a lot of downtime. So I, I don't, Zach, help me. How do you concentrate? Do you keep, right. do you stay on the whole time? Do you start to, like, what's the, methodology i feel feel like it's all in the routine like tennis but also you taught me probably 14 15 years old about the breathing techniques about the the four seconds in holding it four seconds out and kind of getting lost in your routine and almost going on autopilot that's the only way to deal with this reactive issue that we have in golf where there's no one forcing you to to make a move you just are the one putting the the force on the ball to get that four footer on the right edge or whatever it is i think putting especially the visual component we saw with cam smith being the the most confident putter is all in your head it doesn't have anything to do with your your physique or anything it's just all about you putting that really sometimes delicate stroke on the ball and somehow seeing it go in, whether there's a few bumps, a few spike marks in your line. I mean, these guys weren't putting on pure surfaces at all in that final group. So there's a lot of willing that ball in and getting lost in your routine, I would say. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think that's the difference too, because whenever I talk to, when I'm, if I'm coaching tennis, the one thing, my biggest theme is repetition and and every time you step on a tennis court every time you do anything you're creating habits it's up to you to create good habits or bad habits but no matter what you do you're creating the habits right and and tennis in particular like a pre-serve routine is exactly the same as a pre-driving routine which should be exactly the same as a pre-putting routine none of them are none of them are right or wrong but they all better repeat if they repeat I mean, I'll, I'll give you a great example. If you watch Roger Federer serve, any of his serves, and I guarantee you there is so little difference between any of his serves because he's done it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times that the rhythm and the tempo looks exactly the same. So just like I just said, what is a, right, and, but like I said before, what does a guy do over six-foot putt? How does a tennis player serve the center court of Wimbledon when it's 5-4 in the fifth set? And, sure. you know, and whatever, right. you got 40 million people watching and everyone in the stadium repetition. So it's, it's the same thing. And I think that's probably where I would imagine that's where it comes into play in <clears throat> golf as well, because it just comes into yeah. your habits. That's, Absolutely. That's like I what still... Zach tells me all the time every day to, for me to get better. And I'm, I'm the worst golfer out of the group of us talking right now. And I and I can tell you that's one thing Zach has inserted into my brain is you just got to keep swinging. You got to go out there and swing. You got to get out there every day and swing 40 times in the air, even if you can't do this. I mean, Brendan, we joke all the time. We, he calls it the garage and it's or his uh, workshop and it's just his garage and he's out there. You know, Brendan's got two kids, busy life, and he just goes out there for the swings and and works on his form because you know got your track man set up in the garage and got all your different What's spin rate. You got your track man set up and the spin rates and everything going. And <laughs> oh, it's all in the head. Oh, I'm mad. It is. It's all in the head. I literally have an old uh, our old welcome mat that has a, a sun on it, so it gives <laughs> me a little bit of kind of 
uh, a distance pattern that I can swing on and it's all mental. Yeah, I'm not hitting anything. I'm just literally trying to get feel. It's all feel kind of like tiger always talks about mm-hmm. feeling the hand. So mm-hmm. that's what I've been working on. What, what's yeah. your hand? What's your handicap? You don't mind me. Uh, I'm probably hovering around 15. Okay. But I'd say I, I didn't really get too serious into playing golf until last year. I had always played all my life, maybe once or twice a year, but was really into any kind of sport you can think of growing up. Talk and, about uh, a kid now who should have played tennis. Yeah. Brendan. That's, he's, he's, he's our he's, guy. I, he's I a tall, actually lanky. did. I, pl- I played tennis when I was uh, really, really young in, in Atlanta. Um, and I, I believe I won a, a few like local tournaments and stuff like that. But just, I don't know. Something changed my mind. And you I, stopped I when you were on top. On... I like that. You went out on top. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I did. the way to do it. I did the old uh, George Costanza, you know, walk out on a high note. So. There you go. <laughs> I like it. I like it. You know, one of the things I find really interesting with golf and tennis, too, is I have had a good fortune of being a tennis family member my whole mm. life. I played yeah. junior tennis, college tennis, pro tennis. Then I coached tennis, uh, pro tennis players went into junior development um, as well. One of the things I find really interesting when I look at it from a teaching coaching point of view, like I, my big thing is every individual is on a scale, okay? And that scale is a line, it's a linear scale. And on one end, you're a mechanic. And on the other end, you're a magician. And somewhere within that. that line is everybody. And what I've found in my time coaching Pete Sampras and Zach Grossman and Roger oh Federer and Tim Henman, people like, no matter who I'm with, seriously, they're on that scale. And every person that I've been around that knows themselves the best tends to maximize their potential much more regularly than the others because the others tend to be a lot less secure in who they are and how they go about it. And what I mean by that is a mechanic would be Nick Faldo would be a guy yeah. that hits nine oh, sure. million golf balls. And in tennis world, it would be someone, you guys, uh, Jim Courier, who's a good friend of mine, who's mm. former number one in the world, who's actually a very mm. good golfer too. He's a mechanic. Yvonne Lindell is a mechanic. Federer is a magician. Like it just looks like he's floating across this court and he shouldn't be able to do what he does. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't work hard, but what it means is he goes about the process of getting better staying better and understanding himself in a much different way than a mechanic. A mechanic has to work his way through. And if you don't know you're a mechanic and you treat yourself like you're a magician, you're not going to be anything. And if you're a magician and you treat yourself like you're a mechanic, you burn yourself out. So for me, every coach has to know where their player is on that spectrum to figure out how to manage the training, the downtime, the psychological stuff. And I actually think when I watch players, I love to be amateur psychologist and just guess. And one of my – Bob Rotella is a, a, a great uh, golf sports psychologist who I've known for a lot of years, and he's worked with a, a lot of the best golfers on the planet. I've talked to a bunch of times, and I've asked him his advice about certain players. And it's really interesting because he's always said to me, you know, when I'm with a player and he goes to hit a shot, and it's the absolute wrong shot, but he's totally committed to it, I'm like, right, good good call. You know, if they're totally committed right. to what they're doing, then it's much more likely going to happen, even yeah. if it's the wrong because shot. Because the confidence brings right. it through the rest of it. Right, and so and so the tie-in for me is, is 
is basically if you know who you are, where you are on that spectrum, you tend to be a lot more secure. It takes a lot more to knock the confidence out of you. And my big belief yeah. is that every player is only as good as their average day. And the great players I've been around, Federer, Pete Sampras, people like that, I've never, those two in particular, I've never seen people that waste less energy on stuff they can't control and also panic less when they don't play well. And, and they just mm. feel like if I play average, not in an arrogant way, but in a really pragmatic way, if I play average, I'm going to figure out a way to win this match. And then I'm going to figure out a way to get to the semis and finals, and then I'm going to win. And I bet you, I, I would bet my life that Tiger Woods in his prime is exactly like that. I think Tiger was a lot like Pete. I, I can see that same, like, I'm going to figure this out. And I wonder, yeah. and I wonder how many golfers that are great I see so many people fiddling with their swings and getting yeah. it starting hitting 9 million balls and they start to look for things that dare I say maybe they're not there. You know, maybe they yeah. actually aren't there. Maybe you're looking too hard. Maybe it's more simplistic than that. But if you don't know where you are on that spectrum of magician to mechanic, then you're kind of playing darts in the dark. Now, now who yeah. as an athlete helps you get to that? Like if you're an athlete and, and you're in that world, is it always just your coach, or I, can it sometimes be peer peer pressure it can, groups? It, can it be I think, family? Can it be anything? I think it can be anything. And and to me, I think I think the most. And this is where I think teachers and coaches get the raw deal because the teacher to me, a teacher is very different than a coach. In my opinion, a teacher is someone gives you technique, fundamentals, a base, all of the kind of technical stuff to put something together, whether it's a golf swing or a tennis stroke or whatever. A coach is someone that takes that stuff that's there, that foundation, learns how to implement that into tennis strategy, learns how to in implement that into the characteristic of the individual so that that individual knows their identity, mm -hmm. which they then know where they are on the spectrum, and therefore starts to build a routine so they know how to get better. Mm -hmm. So right. coaching and teaching to me is different but the teachers, in my opinion, don't ever get nearly enough credit because without them, without great teachers, I never would have coached Pete Sampras. I wouldn't have coached Roger. You Probably because the attitudes, the mentality wouldn't have been instilled, really. Right, and that, that they do all that fundamental work early on. But I just think it's really important to understand that. And to me, ultimately, the players have to buy in, whether it's a golfer or a tennis player, you know, you have to buy in. You guys probably... Are you guys familiar with a tennis player named Nick Kyrgios? Yes. He got to the finals yeah. of Wimbledon. Absolutely. He's an Australian guy. He's real volatile. Yep. He's like 27 years old. Unbelievably oh, yeah. talented. Kind, kind of a modern-day McEnroe. A little, a little, a little bit. bit. And yeah. a little John Daly-esque. Yeah. You know, just right. really yeah. flamboyant and talent and very irreverent. And, and I think a lovely Has kid. Has a lot of style. Yeah. And I think a real, I it does a lot of great philanthropic stuff with kids that are underprivileged. But he also loses his mud on the court. He just flips out and does a lot of stuff that's not so good. And so many people have yep. said to me, you know, who should coach Nick Kyrgios? Would you like to coach Nick or who should coach Nick? And my answer is always the same. It's whoever he buys into could be a garbage man could be a school teacher could be a postman doesn't really matter if he doesn't want to if he doesn't buy right. in doesn't matter and I, I i bet it's the same with golfers i would imagine it's the same with golfers you have to find someone that you kind of can buy into that really helps you with that foundation to understand who you are what your identity is and then how to maximize it but absolutely and if you take Tiger and you look at him through his years and his progression he started off with Butch Harmon and then he went to Hank Haney and recently Chris Cuomo mm -hmm. he's he bought into these guys for 
for a bit of time, but as time went on, whether it's his body getting a bit older, degenerating or, or whatever, that swing that he had learned with those coaches didn't quite work for him anymore. So he had to find something else to buy into. Do they reinvent themselves as they get the golfers reinvent themselves as they get older? I mean, do they have I to? I think so. I think Tiger has I mean, had to just because of yeah. how violent yeah. and violent and beautiful his well, swing think is. Well, the, the, I mean, just to interject. The picture was a gift, Todd. I'm taking a little <laughs> for little of, crashers. <laughs> for span of career in, in those sports worlds, too, I think it's important. I guess golf is more of a career. Like, you can play it for 50 years, whereas tennis, right. I don't. I mean, you can, but it's, so you're not, not in that capacity. Yeah, I, I wish think. I was a great. I've, I'm so jealous I wasn't a golfer. It's just in that <laughs> you are. I never, you you are. Are. I never could have done it. I mean, that's why I'm so amazed. I, I, just, I just love it. I think it's one of the most amazing activities just because it, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really is about you. I mean, it's a, you know, what can you do on the day? Yeah. It's absolutely. What You're it not is. reacting to anybody else except you. I yeah, mean, yeah. That, that that's it. And so you know, in tennis or football or basketball or whatever, you know, sometimes you get beat, and sometimes someone throws a pitch too well, or sometimes you know you can't defend somebody on a basketball court. But in golf, yeah, you might get beat by Cam Smith, who made every putt from the pl- four corners of the globe. No on, excuses. Right. Yeah, but that you know yeah. that's too good. But it's really is just about you. And then it's the margins. You know, I, I always when I commentate on tennis, I always cliche, but it, talk about narrow margins on the pro tennis tour. I, I actually think it's even worse on the golf tour. I mean, I think I watched every hole on Sunday that Rory McIlroy played, and I've always been a fan. I was lucky enough to meet him a couple times. One of the nicest guys I've met. I've always been a fan, and I I, I couldn't believe how well he played, and I couldn't believe how few putts went in. And, and it wasn't like yeah. the putts were bad. It wasn't like he was hitting them eight feet past. I mean, like literally three millimeters to the right. Skirting or edges. Yeah, I mean, it was just on, you know, yeah. I, as a golfer, I just don't know how. What do you say to yourself when you get home on Sunday night? I mean, because yeah. he hit the ball, he hit the ball yeah. fine. He, he did. He was yeah. very gracious in defeat. And like you said, with Federer and Sampras, when you play poorly, you don't panic, and he didn't seem like he was really panicking. No, he at didn't. All. He didn't. He just he, couldn't believe. It. I just I kept trying to make, and they didn't drop. So well, it goes. Well, you know, Paul yeah. firsthand. I mean, from dealing with champions. I mean, Roger Federer is a twenty-time champion. Sampras as well, eleven, fourteen, time, 14, 14 mm-hmm. sorry, fourteen-time okay. champion. It's like, you know, you're you're. You de- you've dealt with these kind of guys. How do they bounce back from that mentality if they've just lost some giant, you know, some major or some? How, how do they bounce back? I think mentally? every, you know, I think everybody's different. I think it depends on your personality. Pete, you know, Sampras was he was really good at rebounding, and I, I talked to Roger about it. You know, Roger's lost some big matches. He lost in the finals yeah. of Wimbledon, having two match points three years ago. Right. Against Djokovic, he served with two match points. I, yeah, I remember that. I actually was coaching him where two years in a row, in a row, in the semifinals of the U.S. Open, he had match points against Djokovic and lost. Two years in a row. And the second time when I walked out of the stand, I literally, I, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I felt so badly for him. And one time we went, after he lost a match at Wimbledon where he's up two sets to love, and he lost, and, and we got back to his house afterwards and as soon as we walked in the house when he's done with me he jumps on the floor and he's playing with his twins and his girls and they're having a really good time and you know a couple hours later we went for a walk and I just asked him you know how do you how do you process that and he said you know I've played so much there's I could give you a lot of matches that I shouldn't have won that I did 
And, and so these, you know, come out because it's me and I'm number one in the world. So I make more news when I lose. But believe me, I remember the ones. And when I look back at it in hindsight, the last Wimbledon he won then when I was with him in 2012, in the second or third round, he was down two sets to love or two sets to one and his back went out on him and he literally mm. couldn't turn his back. And so he found a way to win that match. And I was like, he's going to be done for the tournament. And the next day he had off and it was a little better. And then the next round he won and it was still a little better. And all of a sudden, nine days later, he wins a tournament. And so, you know, I look back at that and I think about what he said. And he's a, there's a great example of it. I have 20 of them. I have 20 of them with Sampras as well where yeah. they probably shouldn't have gotten through, and they did. But all of a sudden, when that happens in the big moment and, and they lose because it's a Sampras or Federer or Tiger or Rory or whoever, people are like, oh, no. But the way they get past it is the objectivity and the pragmatism to understand that it goes both ways. And if they don't, sure, then they're destined to drive themselves nuts, I think. Yeah, well, and, and that's what you see a lot of these athletes tragically kind of get themselves sucked into with these mental spews. I think Patrick Cantlay could be a perfect example of a guy who's been through a little winner's drought this year with, I think, this mentality. We talked about it on previous podcasts, Zach, with how he just kind of gets there but doesn't kind of get that winning finishing mentality on, on the last couple days um, or that last day. And I think that's kind of like, you know, maybe it's to what you were talking about, Paul, is that blend of mechanical and madness, when and where to use it and how does it flow through you. You know, the, the best ones, like you said, control it and can sense it and, and know what they are and, and play off that. Yeah, it's interesting. In tennis, like, it's really simple for me because I can see somebody's game. And I know, like, I knew what Pete was doing if things weren't going great. I knew how he would stay in the match. And I knew at the big moment right. he would figure out a way to win. With golf, I guess it's probably the same way, right? Because Rory's an unbelievable ball striker, yeah. right? He's a great off the tee. And his putting can fluctuate a little bit. And so I guess Sunday was an example of it, but I watched so closely and tried to look. And to me, from a layperson's point of view, it's like those putts look pretty good. I mean, they're edges everywhere. You know, it's not like he's, you know, and I'm sitting there going, he must go back at, I mean, at night, I hope he's got that same mentality as Roger does, where he goes, yep, you know, I had my chances today, gave myself good chances, and they didn't drop. That's the way the game is sometimes. Yeah. With with the yeah. media too, social media, everything's under such a microscope that like you're saying, I feel like superstars, if you don't have that leveling mentality, you're going to drive yourself nuts and it's not going to end well. So yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I mean, so I would hate to be a professional athlete in today's world with oh social God. media. I, I would hate to be in the public eye. I mean, it would be, it's rough. I mean, it's, yeah. it's brutal. And Speaking and you, of which, people... Like even us as a smaller golf podcast, when when we broadcast out, I mean, golfers are looking at some of our stuff. We we tag them in things and post things. I can only imagine if they're looking at our stuff, if they're looking at some other guy who's like hating on them or saying something grotesque or something rude. I mean, we're like cheering them on and saying funny things and like I can only imagine this world of athletes yeah. where you don't where you can't buy into that psyche. I mean, yeah. Oh my goodness! And, no. and you've got oh, guys sure. like Zalatoris who's recently been so close on all these majors he's looked at our stuff before yeah and how do you uh, how are you looking at all that social media soaking it in not that anyone's really rooting against Zalatoris but then you got Bryson you got Kepka 
you got all these guys going to live. The, I saw Lee Westwood was getting death threats from from people on social media for his live oh, membership. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's gone. It's gone awry with all this, and it's. it's I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Turn, if anything, turn off your social media. I'm sitting here and enjoying the conversation. Zach literally just said exactly what I was going to bring up, but no, I. <laughs> I I can't, I can't imagine, and you know, who knows what happens with our show, but if we get to a point where we start getting that, uh, you always like to think it's something that wouldn't affect you, but if you're just getting blasted left and right with, with hate mail, basically, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like you really have to have a strong mentality to kind of push through that, and these guys being in such a public eye, just imagine that pressure, like you were saying, Paul, standing over that ball, and it's just you and that <laughs> ball, and you have thousands of people watching you in person and then you have millions, you know, watching you on TV and then you're just getting all that pressure. It's, it's gotta be incredible. Yeah, I, I can, I'll tell you one quick story. I coached Tim Henman, who is from England, from the UK, and he was number four in the world. And he got to Wimbledon semifinals, I think four times and maybe quarters, eight times or something. And, and he was of the Agassi Sampras era. And, and, and he was always, to be quite honest with you, he's just one level just below. He was always, I coached him from 2004 to 2007, and he, he was a great player. But every time I flew to England, I can't tell you how many taxi drivers that I told that they asked me what I did, that I say I coached Tim Hem, and they, oh, such a failure. Oh, my oh. God. I just can't win Wimbledon. He's just, he just, just can't do it. He's just no good. And I, and I, so brutal. It, you know, this is back in the day, but also because England's such a, it's a small place and they have 30 newspapers, the United Kingdom. I mean, they oh, right. so it was, yeah. it was, it, and Wimbledon is an and absolute, God, it's an absolute you know? fishbowl. Yeah. And here's a guy that, in my opinion, is one of the greatest maximizers of talent I have ever seen. My, my definition of being a success is anyone that maximizes their talent, whatever that talent is. If it's 400 on the block, if it's to be the best teacher in your element, whatever it is, if you yeah, maximize sure. it, your success. And so Tim got to be four in the world, got to the semis of Wimbledon a bunch of times, got to the semis of the US Open, got to the semis of the French Open. He was great. He just never won Wimbledon. Yeah. And, and so for me, the person, this is before social media. And so now I look at what athletes go through, and like I said, I coach Taylor Fritz, and I look at the social media stuff that goes on, and I'm like, wow, this is rough. I mean, I used to tell Tim before Wimbledon, do not look at a newspaper from May until after the tournament's over. And literally, that was part of our deal. It's like, you're not allowed to look at a newspaper for two months. Yeah. And, and we just play, and you just do what you can do. And, and, and it's, it's hard, but now you, you talk about stuff you guys are talking about with Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter and everything else, and everyone's got an opinion on everything. It's dangerous. I mean, I feel bad for a, a lot of the young athletes, but more importantly, the young kids. The kids, too. I mean, there's a lot of kids with a lot of broken hearts with some of the stuff I commentate on TV and some of the stuff I read about myself. I'm like, Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> just trying to watch a tennis match and let you know what I think. And, and I've found commentary. It was hard at the beginning for me because I actually tried to please everybody. And Jim Courier helped me a lot. He was just like, just, just be yourself. Find, find your voice and tell people what you see. 
because sure. you've been doing this for 25 years and you've been top 15 in the world and you've coached Pete and Roger and Henman and everybody else and you've worked for three federations. Tell them what you see and why. And guess what? Some are going to like you, some aren't, but find your voice and let it be. And so now it's taken me a while, but I feel good doing that. But I know it's not going to make everybody happy, but I still feel comfortable because I'm doing what I like to do and I'm just doing it from the heart and what I see and why I see it. And, and so I see one one millionth of what's going on, but I can't imagine what these athletes deal with. I just yeah. can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, segueing to that, I mean, you, you're coaching some, a young talent right now. How do you keep him away from the social media I mean, and, and away from the distractions? You know, I, I don't think you do. I mean, I think, you know, you, you leave it up to them to manage. And I heard a good story about Steve Kerr coaching the Golden State Warriors when someone asked him about it. And he said, you know, you can't fight it. So I asked him about it. Like, I'll walk in the locker room and I'll see, you know, Thompson or I'll see Steph on the phone. What are they saying about you? You know, I just ask them. And, and so, because you're not going to stop it. And I think you have to hope that you have a strong enough foundation that it doesn't adversely affect the person. Um, I, I think if it, you become OCD or becomes so dominant that you become a little bit dysfunctional because of it, then, then you need some help, whether it's a sports psychologist or your best friend or your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your parent, whoever, you might maybe need some help. But I think you just have to be careful. But look, it's so easy to, you know, the thing I, that, that kind of makes me cringe, it's, I don't want to get all sentimental, makes me kind of sad, is that it's just easy to have an opinion, very easy to have an opinion, especially if you're anonymous. Sure. Oh, sure. When you can write behind the, the, the darker screens. And it's, it's crazy, too, to look at the, like what Zach was saying, the live golf and, and what we've transferred into this. And now we're talking about this. And, Paul, you said the tennis world has already been through this uh, already. And now golf is seeing a lot of the same. And what's the kind of comparisons that you've drawn? Well, one of the biggest challenges for tennis, one of the similarities with golf and tennis is it's a global sport, right? It's a global individual sport tennis and golf and, mm, and right. one of the challenges that tennis has always had is that it's got splintered governance you know all the four majors just like in golf the four majors in tennis are their own entities and then you have the men's tour which is the atp tour which is 63 events around the globe and then you have the women's tour which is a wta tour and so they try to work together and with the majors at those events and this is a much more friendly alliance but yet there's a lot of different governance i didn't even mention the international tennis federation right which is another governing body i mean it goes on there's a lot and so when i see the and you have pga tour you have european pga tour you have australasian P, you have a lot of different tours right, sure. but do. now you have someone that's really challenging right the live tour and they're in the same markets yeah. in right. the same water right with the same talent pool. right so now yeah. it's becoming real and and so when I first saw it, I just was like, uh-oh. I felt badly just because I know this what the splintering effect does in terms of branding and what it does for the consumers and also for the players. For the consumers, it waters down the product, right? You don't get to see everybody together as much, which is a shame. Yeah, that's for the you know, For the players, it gives them an opportunity to make a lot of money, and for the best players, a lot more money a lot more easily. And so far be it for me to pass judgment because I don't. I, I guess in life there's a price for everything, but what is it? You know what? How? What is it? Well and, and and what are your 
What, what are your beliefs about it? And the only thing I can think about is it's about kind of how you were brought up and what you think you want out of life to be happy. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember asking Pete, Pete Sampras got offered a huge amount of money to go somewhere and it really didn't fit right in his, in his schedule. And so he was torn. And this is a, my analogy was with the live tour without the moral implications. Okay. This is not a moral implication thing. It was just a money implication thing. And they said, you know, so Pete said, I don't know, what should I do? And I said, look, let me ask you a question. If you go, how is it going to affect your life? He goes, not at all. And I said, okay, if you don't go, how is it going to affect your kids and their kids' lives in terms of their ability to have a healthy life and have resources? And he said, not at all. I said, okay. I think you kind of answered your question then, didn't you? Yeah. And he didn't go. Huh. Wow. And, and so my point is there's a price for everything. I, I guess I don't know what it, you know, everyone's is different, but I always go back to stuff like, and even at my level, there's a lot of stuff I see and I'm like, do I, I'm like, oh, how, is this good for my quality of life? Is it good for my wife? Is it good for my kids? Is it good for my personal life? Do I need this professionally? And you try to weigh those things. So imagine what these guys are going through on the, on the live tour. These are guys that are just young superstar athletes that are getting numbers they through the perfect people. Yeah, I mean, you you look at yeah. who went, I wasn't surprised at the and no judgment. I just look at personalities. I wasn't surprised at who went. Um, yeah, yeah, right. In that a, sense, and I'm just you know I'm concerned for the sport. Um, I don't know what I would do. It's easy for me to sit here and go, Oh, Mickelson, you're an idiot. Why did you? I can't believe Dustin mm. John. <laughs> Someone Those are the first two guys you would think probably would go. Right, but DJ then, Mickelson. Well, then you go there, you know, and Brooks Kepka maybe. But you go there, and and yeah. and how about some of the other guys, the lesser guys that don't have yeah. the kind of resources that those guys have. Yeah, that the Taylor, the Taylor Gooches. Is right. the same at the same time? Taylor Gooch. Yeah, exactly. That's who I think of immediately is Taylor Gooch, and and he's getting flack and he's Pat pushing Perez. back. Did Pat Perez? Pat go? Perez went. Oh, yeah. he's Pat been Perez. wearing his money shirt for months now. So I mean, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of like it's so easy. <laughs> to pass judgment but I, I i really try to shy away from it because i i just have lived so close to scenarios like that where it seems like an easy answer but it really isn't but i like i said my own barometer is always what i just i try to you know listen to myself a little bit and i just remember that day so vividly with pete because he was so torn because it was money it was <laughs> it was a lot of money Right. And and, oh. and and I was like, well, how? And he's like, well, it's not going to affect it. I said, okay, is it going to affect your? Kid? No, it's not going to affect it. And then I and then the part I left out was, well, if you do go, it's actually going to cut your preseason training a little bit shorter than we want it to be, as well. And so there was a was it a disaster shorter? And he's no, just a few days here and there. But I was like, so you have that negative part couple days here and there and then you have the other part and it was very it was really quickly processed and right away he was like yeah i, I need a pass i need to pass so true true champion decided that the practice time was worth yeah. it and that's that's what so, it is so you have this preparation and it's kind of in with the live tour it seems like it's generational wealth for the for a lot of these guys versus legacy and kind of the quality of your game because if you go to this live tour you're 
playing three rounds sparingly, you're not really preparing for majors like you would on a re- in a regular season PGA Tour setup. That's a very so good point. It's really all about the money for these guys that are going over there because they're sacrificing so much of their prep time. It's and both, it makes yeah. you wonder what you think there will be a live tour player that wins a major in the next couple of seasons. It'll be interesting to see if that if that ever... they're good enough. I mean, the, the players are they're good enough to. But you just enough. you just wonder. You know, one of the things, Zach, too, that that you know, since I've been on a couple other other sides of it too, just marketing and business side of it, I, I, I you know, the live tour is the live tour. But I actually understand. I was on the board of directors of the ATP, the men's tour, for four years. Okay, for the men's tennis tour. And so I was part of policy setting team about governance and rules and all this other stuff. And so I I understood enough to be dangerous. I understood the commercial aspects involved. So when you say three rounds instead of four, you know, these tours are trying to figure out and these sports are trying to figure out what's next to keep up with whomever to get the big sponsorship dollars to keep. So I, yeah. I commend not the live tour, but in general, the sports that are trying to figure, it doesn't mean I like what they're doing, but at least they're trying, you know, I can't always just bat like the men's tennis tour now is going to have a trial on court coaching scenario starting now. They're, wow. la- they're allowing coaching, which isn't allowed in tennis during matches. Okay, so you can you're going to sit in designated seats and you're going to be allowed to if the players on your side of the court, you can converse with them. If they're on the other side of the court, you can use signals, but you can't shout across the court. So I'm against it. I'm strongly against it, but I'm only against it because I'm against it for a different reason. But I commend the fact that they're trying to do it. I think they're doing it for the wrong reason. The reason I think they're doing it is because. They don't know how to police the current rule, which is no coaching allowed. They can't. They don't call coaches out in the stands enough, so they're just going to kind of allow it to happen. Right. There's this great. That's what I think. Yeah. The reason I don't like it is is other than golf. But golf's included, except you have your caddy, which helps. A lot of these caddies are really good, so it does help. But tennis, to me, is the biggest and most singularly driven meritocracy on the planet. It's only you. Mm. You're the you figure out. Mm. My job as a coach is to figure out how to give Taylor Fritz the tools, so that when he plays on center court at Wimbledon, he can think and problem solve under pressure. It's not to tell him what to do under pressure. It's up to him. My job as a coach is to give him all those skills, so that when he's there in the darkest moments of his mind and he can't get through the nerves, my job was to give him the information so that he can sort his way through it. My job isn't to stand up at center court and tell him to do something. It'll get in his mental psyche in that moment, too, shifting his... I mean, sure, do I think I could help? Sure, of course course I do, but I think that that takes away from the beauty of tennis. Tennis is, it's you, it's it. You can't hide, no substitutes, no timeout. I love Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tom Brady. I love all these guys, but they have help. You get no help on a tennis court. It's kind of like a Coliseum gladiator yeah. type. You get no thing help. Well, on even even in golf, you have caddies. Right. They yeah. tell I you mean, basically I mean, everything. They tell you the lie. They tell you the, the read. They tell you the right. thing. They I mean, tell you everything. To me, golf is the closest to it because the yeah. golfers have to do it as well. But in and in, in tennis, there's I just so so I'm just giving you an example. So there there's a rule that they're trying. I don't like it at all, but they're going to try it. So I understand having to try things. But when you create a tour like the Live Tour, which 
there's so many things that alarm bells go off. It makes it really hard, but also being so close to it, man, I, I can see why those players that did decide to do it did it. I think if I was coaching any of them, especially the Phil Mickelsons and those other guys that are worth a lot of zeros with decimal points way over, I would say, how is this going to affect your life? I would have the same conversation. And that's what's wild to me, looking at some of these guys. Like, even looking at a guy like Dustin Johnson or Phil, Phil, I mean, you know, we know Phil has his debts with gambling that I'm sure he had to solve out a little bit with the Saudis. That's my hot take. But <laughs> Dustin Johnson, that's a young guy who's had a lot of career left, who's made tens of millions anyway. He didn't really need the money, I don't think, unless, you know, he's in the same wretched boat as somebody else. But I, I just, I don't know. To me, it was just like you said, Zach, it's more about the legacy versus the generational wealth. And I just think a guy like that was kind of already in his path. That one was the only real surprising one to me out of the Dustin. real group was Dustin. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was kind of like, okay, yeah, they plucked a guy that hasn't been playing great as of late and, you know, could use great money like this and could set themselves up and has this kind of attitude that wouldn't mind, you know, whatever. And I don't say that I'm not passing judgment on anybody, but it's just... That's what I think is it just kind of yeah. he was the real surprising one to me. And now glimmering in the rumors, we hear Cam Smith could potentially the open winner could potentially go to the live tour. Apparently yeah. he was offered a plus a hundred million dollar deal. That would be very un-Australian. That off character, very off character, very un-Australian, and also very unlike his character yeah. itself, because he's the guy inviting caddies over after a win to it grab seems beers. Like a great, you know, he's, yeah. he's a different it kind of guy. Doesn't make him a bad but, guy to go, but like I said, there's a price for everything, and you just have to. What's your? It sounds so silly, but what, what is your motivation? What are you doing? Like, why are you? Why do you do this? I think he would be the tilt, though. If they take Cam, that's when like the average tour guy is like, oh, okay, all right, now because. That's an exciting player that our generation is extremely excited about. He's like the, our our version of a you know a Scotty or a Tiger or whatever. Like he has that winning mentality that we are all obsessed with, and he's like got the confidence, and he's this young fun guy, and he's so personable, and he he's humble about everything. It's like that's the golfer we're looking at, and if Liv takes him too, it's like okay, now we have to start looking at things and looking at all these things. Is this only the beginning? Are things going to tear and splinter more? And is it going to be a tug of war between personalities and coaches and, and organizations? They're taking announcers. Faraday has now gone to the LIV. It's like, what do you do? It's a, it's a crazy hill we're going on now. So. Yeah. Cam Smith would be the best player to make the switch in the current state of his game. He's Absolutely. contending in every major. <clears throat> And we've heard a lot of rumors, too. I mean, Jordan Spieth was talking about how he had. there were rumors that he was going out to the Live Tour, and it, it seems very off-character for him, too. We know Justin Thomas is very outspokenly against it. And these younger guys who have the legacy mentality and the greatness, guys who grew up idolizing Tiger, I don't see them making that move. No. You have guys... It, the interesting thing between Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson that I was thinking about is that Phil seems like someone who's just going to do whatever pops into his head. He's going to go with his own idea. And Dustin Johnson seems very suggestible, like he has people in his ear and he's going to do what the trusted people around him say. I'm not saying it was Paulina, but maybe someone <laughs> like Paulina. Right, right. I mean, you got to think about that, too. There's a lot of peer group and peer pressure around these guys in their decision-making as well. 
but it's it's crazy that we've came to this point. And like you said, rumors are a big thing, social media, everything else. But you got to think about that seriously when when you got those names floating around, and even if they're taking commentators that people love, that's like somebody taking somebody precious, a Jim Nance, if he starts going right. over. So you're like, uh, what? Now I don't have the voice in my head of golf every week that I have loved for the last. You know, you can't just take Marv Albert away right. and, and replace him with some jabroni that nobody knows and likes and Faraday, expect it to be flowing. Faraday and, and Jim Nance are kind of... So you have Jim Nance, who's the PGA Tour of announcers, and you have Faraday, who's the live tour of announcers. <laughs> it's so true. It's not surprising, but... Kind of. It's certainly not surprising, yep. but but it's a, it's a move nonetheless. It's, yeah, it's... I would love to see John Daly fill uh, Faraday's seat. Oh. Just sitting there chugging (laughs) beers and just ripping cigs. No, he's too busy playing, man. He's still ripping it up on the course, making eagles. He He, he ain't finished yet. He said, I'm not done. Hold my Diet Coke and my peanut M&Ms. All of these majors, he's like through four holes, and and he's tied with Scotty and (laughs) and these guys who are in the top 20. That is some good social media content coming out of John Daly playing majors. It's incredible. I think I think the beers are the cigs, and, and I know this is impossible. He must have had a hardcore night night before, but uh, I think they hit him on the 16th hole. He went bogey, bogey, bogey to finish the second round, missed the cut. Oh, not enough. Might have hit the car girl too many times on that turn. <laughs> Might have hit her for too many beverages. <laughs> you know, Paul, I, uh, I have to ask. You lived through and you kind of got to see Agassi versus Sampras. You've seen Federer and Nadal. How, like, what was that like kind of watching those rivalries unfold? Surreal. You know, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to explain. It's, I've, I always found it really hard to explain emotion. And, and I think that the surreal is the best word that I can think of. And there's a couple times where, even at my ripe old age, where I honestly was sitting there with goosebumps and and one of them was in 2002 at the u.s open when there's 23,000 people in the stands getting ready to watch the finals they have two huge tv screens and people are kind of talking blah 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 the announcer's talking and then all of a sudden on the two huge tv screens they show a picture of andre and pete in the hallway about to walk in i'm just i'm getting goosebumps on my legs thinking about right now and the reason that it was so impactful to me was that 12 years ago, 12 years before that, Andre and Pete in 1990 burst onto the scenes playing each other in the finals of the U.S. Open. So that was their, I believe that was their 39th meeting, uh, 2002 final. And so to see those guys do that and to watch them beat the heck out of each other for that many years is it's just amazing. You know, there's no place to hide. They, I just remember so many times, same with Roger and Rafa. You know, Roger and Rafa played in the finals of 2017 Wimbledon. And I was in the, I was down there commentating and I was in the player uh, dining area with Roger and his coach, you know, like two hours before the match. And I'm just sitting there talking with those guys. And I said, okay, Roger, what am I going to see today? And he just goes, he goes, this is going to be fun. He goes, I, I, I worked so hard to get back and play because he didn't play for six months coming into the Australian Open. Right, I remember And neither did Rafa. And he said, I'm just, no matter what happens, no matter what the score is, I'm just going to keep swinging. I'm going to be offensive. I'm not going to give up the baseline. I'm going to just really have a good time, enjoy it. Who knows how many times we're going to play each other. 
I'm just so happy that I'm here again. And he got down, I think he got down 3-1 in the fifth set. And the last 20 minutes of the match in the fifth set was some of the best tennis I'd ever seen. And historically, that's not a time where Roger has played his best against Rafa. And I just remember in the dining area, kind of a comfort, kind of a contentness, just an acceptance of what he was going to do. And that simplicity of trusting his identity and just going out there and doing it. And I actually think that really helped in the end because he didn't think too much. It was just all instinct. But whenever you see guys like that and and women like that and athletes like that that do it over an entire era, it it the only word I can think of is surreal and exciting. I mean, as a sports fan, I just sit there. It can be any sport. You know, it can be, you know, when I used to watch Larry Bird and Magic Johnson go at it. You know, you oh, see, yeah. I heard of them. You, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Michael, highlights. Michael Jordan days, you know, whatever. And you see anything where you see people that are just rivals that have done it for a long time. And again, to toot my own sports horn, it's just different in tennis. It's it's just you two. Even in golf, you got to get through the field. You got to make a cut. You got to get to Sunday. Who's in the last group? You know. You know, yeah. granted, there, the, sometimes you have those dream matchups, but you had to go a long way to get to it. Yeah, and the drama of that arena feel in tennis Yeah, as well. Yeah, it is. It's very, uh, it's like a, being a gladiator. You kind of walk into the, to, to the arena, and you come in through the tunnel, and it's pretty cool. Talk about a gladiator. You also coached Sloan Stevens, right? Yeah. Incredible. She's awesome. She's one of the best athletes I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> She's one. She's an amazing athlete. 2017 U.S. Open when she won, yeah. she was in a big slump, and everyone's you know she is an amazing young woman. Just got married in, in January, and and she's never going to be the most consistent tennis player because because that's just her personality. Yeah, that's just who she is. She loves the sport. She loves life, but she's never going to be, you know, Roger, Rafa, Novak. She's never be like Serena was. But she's an amazing athlete. And it won't shock me to see her win another major. She's so good. It's a joke. Yeah. But she's yeah. got a lot going on in her life, too. She's got married, and, and hopefully that part of her life is good, and I think it really is. Yeah. And, and that's what sometimes can breed good champions, too, is, yep. is that grounded life at yep. home, like you were saying. So I've been telling Zach to get married. He's not listening yeah. to me. I mean, <laughs> I, God, I'm just on stuck. the fence. He just doesn't listen. It's just unbelievable. Someday just, soon. I've heard I've heard alternate theories about golf and marriage. There's a but, lot. <laughs> but I, I respect your opinion Brendan, very Brendan, much. Brendan, why don't you share us your thoughts on golf and marriage? And tell us if your uh, wife is standing my, behind the camera. <laughs> Be honest. Yeah, Come she's on. behind the camera. All right. Man, uh, golf and marriage, that's why I swing in the garage, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Swinging in the garage. Well right said. There. Well said. <laughs> At least it's on your property. That's good. <laughs> no, it's not even my garage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Oh, I, uh, I, was, I was curious, though. You know, I know you've won a, a few titles as a player, and then obviously, you know, as a coach, having some of your players win as well. Uh, what was kind of like the difference there and feeling? And did you enjoy playing and, and winning yourself, or 
uh, you know, watching the guy that you're coaching winning more. Well, was I there never, a difference there? That, yeah, well, it was a great question. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I never played at the level of those guys. You know, I mean, I got to, I was top 15 in the world, but I was, you know, I was never one of those guys. But you, you won big events, and yeah, I won three tournaments, and but I didn't win like these guys win, and 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 I, I think the difference is, I took more pride as a player, and I think that that's helped me with my coaching mind because I know I can help, but I know ultimately it's up to them, so I don't feel like, I feel like I had an identity before I coached, so I didn't have to be this look at me, I'm a great coach guy. I I, I never felt that. I knew the people that I were with were special people. I also felt like I could add value, but it's a very different feeling than shaking the hand and receiving a trophy in your hands. You know, they're all really exciting in a very different way. When I won my first title in Los Angeles at UCLA, I beat a guy named Stefan Edberg in the finals, who's a former number one player, who's a great player. So that was huge for me to, to win a match like that there. When Pete Sampras won the 2002 U.S. Open, it was one of my most prideful moments because he hasn't he hadn't won a title in 25 months, and everyone's like, "Oh, he can't do it. He's never going to win again." And all this, and I didn't believe that. I thought he was going to win, and and he did. So that for me felt really good. And then when Roger won Wimbledon in 2012, and he beat Murray in the finals. That was really prideful because it was the first major he'd won, I think, in a couple years. So sick. And and he um, incredible. He you know one of our goals when we started was when Roger and I first started was okay get back to number one and win another major, and by winning that major, he got back to number one, and and so then that was but they're very different feelings you know because ultimately those players have to do it but I I took a lot of pride because. Again, like we talked about coaching before, who should coach whom? And if they're doing that and you're adding value, that means they're buying into your message, which means you're doing something that's important that they like. So then you feel you feel good. You feel like you're added value, which is great. And so you know in a way that it really matters. And and Roger Federer's this is a Roger Federer's strength and conditioning guy said the greatest line to me ever once. We were talking about training and what he was. This guy's a genius. This guy named Pierre Paganini. Love him to death. One of the nicest guys on the planet. He's trying to get Roger to do something, and he's trying to get him to learn something about some strength and conditioning stuff they were doing. And I said, Pierre, what is? What, how important is this? And he said, Well, Paul, he said this is only going to be like one or two percent difference, maybe. And I said, Really? And he goes, Yes but it might be at the 99th most important moment of a match. And he uh, said, and it might be wow. the difference between semifinals and finals or finals and winning a major. I was like, oh, well said. So that's about little tiny details that matter in big moments, right? And to me, that's one of the things that I've learned as a coach, how to let go of stuff, what matters, why, and what really shows up in the biggest moments and how you can help a player understand how to grab that and trust. And so it's fun to feel like you can participate in that equation, but ultimately it's the player. But there's nothing like holding a trophy yourself. You got to think sure. that same mentality sure. too, yeah, with, with between like caddies and 
right? The golfer. Yeah, you got to yeah. think, right? It's got to be the same feeling yeah, almost. Yeah, like you're I, like I, you're I you're so responsible for so much of what's involved, but then, well, you know, the guy gets the trophy and if you're a non-pompous humble golfer, you share that love and experience and that win with the caddy. I think most golfers 99% of them do, yeah. but I'm sure there's a few that don't. Yeah, I would think yeah. that they would, yeah. but imagine the caddy, you know, on the 72nd fairway and there's 20 mile an hour wind at St. Andrews. And, you know, Cam saying, what do you think? Is this a full six or should I? (laughs) (laughs) The pressure on that guy to make that call. That's your, that's your difference maker right there. 99th percent. Yeah. No, that's where I'm, I'm in the clubhouse at the 19th hole. (laughs) (laughs) Tito's and grapefruit. We were talking about, uh, you're talking about winning though. So, I mean, you're the closest any of us will ever even know what this is like. I'm curious, um, what the celebration was like after you know Federer wins Wimbledon? Uh, there's a champions dinner, so you go the men men's and women's champion and their entourage. It's usually, I mean, we had like a table for twelve or something. Go to the one of the big hotels in London and you have a, a night. And it's usually a you know it's it's right after the men's final. So you literally Roger wins a match. You go into the locker room and there's only like six or eight people in there because they don't let anyone in, you know, hugs and you glass of champagne. And literally 15 minutes later, the guy's coming in to take your measurements for your tuxedo. And so he comes in, (laughs) gets your tuxedo measurements. The agent gives them the list of who's going. Roger goes off to do media, which takes three hours. So now we're talking, you know, Wimbledon files at two o'clock. So we're talking, it's 8.30, nine usually 10 at the earliest when you're done the tuxedos are back in the locker room jump into your tuxedo shower get get in the limo and go to the hotel for the for the dinner from 10 30 to 2 in the morning and then you go back and you finish the night the best one was with pete i remember the, the last one pete won at wimbledon was so cool because he won it and then um we did all that and then we went back to his house and we just sat in the living room and talked until the sun came up. And then as soon as the sun wow. came up, I went out. That's incredible. As soon as the sun came up, I walked around the block and I went out and I got like 15 newspapers and I just came back. He was upstairs packing to leave and I just put them all on the floor, all opened with all of his headlines that, you know, he'd won his whatever. Because he, he didn't, he doesn't, he wasn't into any of that stuff at all. But I was like, I was like, dude, you got, just look at this. You got to look. This yeah. is your seventh Wimbledon. Just enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't for five minutes, I'm hungover, but I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> that is so sick. Could you imagine seeing that like in today's world where some kids like, oh, hey, let me show you all the posts. It's like, I already saw them. Exactly. Within 12 seconds, exactly. I've, already, yeah, yeah. I've already gotten barraged yeah. by social media. So I, sorry, I can't do my press conference. It's going to take me an hour and a half to go through all the social media platforms so I can check what everyone said about me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely a different world. And it you've is. seen it in, in two coaches. You know, you've coached now both generations yeah. of players. So It is. I'm still learning. Luckily, my daughter, luckily Olivia, helps me navigate all the social media stuff. Oh, she's yeah. a whiz. Yeah. She is. Absolutely. Yeah, Fantastic. It's... A, it's, a, it's it's interesting times, but it's fun. I mean, there's nothing about sport. sports. This is great. It's just a great, generally a great meritocracy. You know, my wife's an artist. She's a writer, producer. She was a senior executive at MGM for many years. Mm. And I always look at her and I'm just, I listen to her phone calls and I'm just like, 
how do you do it? She goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I can just look up and I'm up six, four, four, two. I know exactly how I'm doing. I know, I know what the score is. Yeah. You got some guy in the other end going, well, we're kind of thinking maybe like it's, it sounds good, but it's a little bit different if we kind of put it in this, it's total subjectivity. <laughs> right. Sports are a lot more like Sports linear like, in that sense. Yeah. Sure. Like, dude, how'd you do? Take a look at the score line. You'll know how I did. Oh, I went yeah. down today. Or I won today. <laughs> some pe- but like you said, it's it's some people are mechanical, some people are magicians like that, and, the, and everybody has their strong points. Everybody has their uh, areas, and I'm sure that she would say the same thing about your line of work. No, and, she and does. What you do. No, yeah. she's like, you know, she always says, "You never look so nervous." You never look nervous. I'm like, I'm not nervous watching tennis. I'm watching tennis. <laughs> right. She was just like, but I've done this my whole life. I don't, you know, it's like, that's, those are the calmest times. You know, it's, I enjoy it. I like watching, and especially I'm coaching someone. I love to watch. I love to watch any athlete. Like this weekend, British Open. I love to watch those players try to figure out how to manage the situation. I mean, I would have, I would have paid a lot of money to know exactly what's going on in Rory's head. When he's really hitting the ball fine, and he can't get a friggin' putt to drop, and he's putting fine. And what's going on in Cam Smith's head when he goes, turns a corner and goes, birdie, 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 birdie. I mean, how all of a sudden do you do this on the last day of a major? Like, what's, what's the methodology? What's happening? Is it really just the moment? And the reason I'm saying that is because there's one person on the planet that I've seen that does this better than any human being I've ever met in my life, and his name is Rafael Nadal. All that matters is the next shot. Nothing happened before that. Nothing's going to happen after that. And as a coach, I always say, how well can you play the next point? I've never seen a person that regroups and resets and tries so hard. He hits every shot with such bad intention and such purpose and such movement that you watch him, and I remember the first time Taylor Fritz saw him practicing at Wimbledon. We were in the next court, and he was watching, going, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, first of all, when he plays matches, it's n- it's not as free. But yeah, that's a lot of energy, right? And he's like, yeah. And I, and, and I just know if there's one person on the planet I'd like to play one point for my life, I know who I'm picking on a tennis court. Yeah. That's that guy. That's wow. awesome. I mean, you've, you've coached some greats. You obviously follow a lot of sports. You see a lot of great players in their respective sports. Is there like one thing that you've been able to narrow down that is kind of a common piece for all those, those people at, at the top of their games? Obviously, talents are always different, but is there like one commonality that you've been able to focus on? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've seen that I believe is the greatest of the greats that I've seen know that you only play great, whatever great is at your level, a handful of times a year. But the greatest of the greats know that on those average days, if they use what's between their ears, they're going to find ways to give themselves opportunities to win anyway. And they believe that. Whereas mere mortals complain that they're playing bad or my backhand stinks today or I'm hitting push slices off the tee every time or I'm yanking every average that's what average players do great players don't they miss something and all that matters is the next shot and they're going to figure out how to get the most out of the next shot even though they're only playing average 
and they don't doubt themselves in the biggest moments. They trust their skills. They do it with different personalities. Some need an edge. Some need to be a victim. Some need the world against them. And some do it just to challenge themselves like a Nadal. All that he all that he challenges himself with is how much effort can I put forth every single point? And if he does that, then he's happy. Novak is a little bit irreverent. He's good with people against him. It, it drives a force. Roger's not. Roger wants to be loved. He's a citizen of the world. He loves the game. He's an artiste. He's he's he, he he's got a lot of joy. Um, I see people like LeBron James, like Kobe and Michael, and Pete Sampras and Tiger, in very similar characteristics, in my opinion, about the shrewdness, their ability to be lethal with their skills of concentration, self-belief, and the ability to execute under pressure. Wow. Yeah. That's all all insane components. And I'm going to start so taking well notes said. to work on myself so I can become... You know, I wrote a book, you guys. It's called Coaching yeah. for Life. Paul did Coaching for Life. Coaching for Life. Coaching for Life. Check it out. On my website... Check it out on his website. I was going to bring. I was going to bring. Going to need some signed copies here. Uh, yeah, I'm a little upset. Thought, you didn't bring any copies. I, I, Wait, you didn't bring any gifts? <laughs> I didn't bring what? gifts. I, I should have coordinated you have a whole, that. You have a whole bar for me, and I didn't bring squat. <laughs> I mean, that's just a useless guest, in my opinion. For those who want to buy Paul's book, you can go to his website, paulanacone.com, or you can go to iriebooks, i r i e books.com. Or you can steal the 7,000 copies that I've stashed in the back of Zach Grossman's car. <laughs> I'll never give those up. <laughs> he's, never, he's never giving them up. He's going to be doing fake autographs and I'm trying to sell them on the outside of Brent's. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, you had a, if you had an audio version of your book and you could choose who was narrating it or reading it, this who is, would that be? Okay. I think... You guys won't know. I hope you know this person. James Earl Jones. Well, yeah, of oh, course. Yeah. Darth Vader. Oh, yeah. I mean, how could you not? Absolutely. Have, how could you not have James Earl Jones? That would be incredible. That would be dope. Wow. James Earl Jones. The Sandlot like himself. I thought you were going to say John Grossman. I would, yeah, but he's too busy farming. <laughs> he's a farmer. Yeah. He's not much of a speaker. <laughs> Is James Earl Jones acceptable? What do you guys think? Absolutely. Who, who would you guys, who would you guys go with? Christopher Walken. Oh, that would be pretty cool, too. The huh? sailor. <laughs> that would be pretty good. Christopher, Christopher Walken, Walken, the great Ow. voices of our time. Who else? There's uh, McConaughey's got his recent. How about Morgan, Sam Jackson? Morgan Freeman, of course. Oh. Morgan Freeman, Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson. Be That's good for the one. exciting parts, huh? There's yeah. just so many great narrators. I mean, Morgan Freeman's Chris getting Tucker. paid now to just narrate. Chris Tucker? Yeah. <laughs> Chris Tucker would be good. Pee Wee Herman? Oh, oh baby. <laughs> Sales would skyrocket. What, a, what, what, breakdown, what does your book talk about? What, what are the components of your book? Coaching for life. It's tennis as a metaphor for life. And here's a, I'll give you one more boring story. Um, uh-huh. My wife's father was a literary agent and a tennis fan. And he used to represent a guy named George Plimpton and a lot of very mm-hmm. famous writers. And I was in his office one day, much like this, talking shop and just talking about a lot of stuff. And he goes, Paul, why don't you write a book? I was like, well, for number one, I can't write. Is that a problem? And he said, no, no, you just talk like this. You just talk. 
and and you do it with someone and you take notes and blah 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 and i and i said okay and he said he goes i want you to talk to, i want you to talk to somebody so he sent me in to meet with some people and i sat down and and i didn't realize it was a pitch what it was a pitch because i walked into a boardroom and there were three people with suits in there and i by the time i left oh. they, they said write that book and so then i started it and the problem is they changed editors so i, I wrote about nine months three different treatments of like 30 pages and then i stopped and i was like i'm not doing this and i just told him i just can't and it was fine and then i started coaching roger and so then i at the end of when i was coaching roger i was like i really have to write this book now because i've had the good fortune of being around some amazing and so then I talked to my wife about it, who introduced me to a guy at Irie Books, who is a very good friend of ours. And Jerry really helped me write the book. And between him and my wife, I would get on the phone with Jerry, and he would ask me a bunch of questions. And then he would send me like eight bullet points, and he just said, just write, just write this stuff. And I would just write, and then my wife would actually make it literate, and then sure. send it back to Jerry. And then next thing I knew, the book was done. And it was just really, it's a metaphor for life. What do champions do? How do they deal with adversity? How good are they on their average day? What are their habits? A lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now. Yeah. And, and the thing that made it so exciting for me is that it, I look at it, and in the moment that I was going through it for the literally the 20 years, now it's been 20 years that it happened, my kids were kids growing up, right? So I'm looking at it going... This is tennis, but this is life. You know, this is why people are successful in life. Sure. You know, Federer and Sampras and Serena Williams and the, the, these people know how to deal with adversity. They know how to manage situations where there's a lot on the line. There's whether you're a tennis player or you're a kid panicking about the SATs or getting ready for a test or a mother that's struggling with her two kids at home because they've been up all night crying. All these things are tied together. Yeah. And so that's what really made me write the book. And so my wife said, she's a genius. She said, I said, you know, I'm so exhausted. I really don't want to do this. She goes, Paul, this book is for one reason. And I said, clearly it's not about making money. She goes, you're right. This book is about when you die, your children and their children have something forever that you did. And they can see what you did. It's your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was like, okay, I'm finishing it. That's your That's legacy. Beautiful. And that was it. So, so I was <laughs> right. like, all right, Elizabeth, you sold me. So yeah. uh-huh. once again, she's a hell of a lot smarter than I am. And luckily, a hell of a lot more literate, too. <laughs> As the usual, oh. man. <laughs> That's that's incredible. Uh, yeah, I've been lucky. I've been living the dream. Living I was going to ask you baby. too, like, <laughs> if for those we don't have video feed on this oh, podcast, Robert. I'm so sorry, but he just did the Will Farrell from old school in the yeah. bathrobe Hang or Wedding oh, Crashers. Yeah. Oh, Hang yeah. Will, Will right, Smith crashers, or Will yeah. Farrell yeah. in the bathrobe. There you go. Incredible. That's a meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> you know this funny funny name is that the my original podcast was actually going to be called Ma the Meatloaf because it was recorded in the basement. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that's but, I, perfect. but I thought they would sue me eventually, Probably. so I, I never did it. But never but, know what she's doing back. There. <laughs> what are you <laughs> doing? Back there? I wanted to ask, in in basically the same direct point, was there ever a moment in your own life? Obviously, you were a successful player first, then to coach. So it's a little different path than somebody else would have if they didn't play and then just coached. But did you ever have that moment where you just knew? you were going to try to be something bigger than your surroundings at the time. 
because you're, I mean, you're, you're born and raised, yeah, born and raised in East from, Hampton. An East, from East Hampton, mm-hmm. from Long Island, from mm-hmm. the East End, not knocking on the Hamptons. It's a very gorgeous place. One of the greatest places on earth, but it's a hard town to kind of break and make a mold out of because there's not a whole lot of things, big life, big city, big everything to do. You kind of really have to carve your way for yourself and, and pave your own way. Was was there ever a moment, or when when was that moment where you kind of knew, hey, I'm different than well, what's going on around me, and I want to make something this that? And the my other. hand was forced because when I was a kid, the nearest indoor tennis courts were 35 miles away. We did not have e hit. We did not have Scott Rubenstein's club right next to right. the East Hampton Airport. Uh, we ha- I had to drive out to West Hampton. So I had so few people to play with that when I was 13, I actually moved to the Nick Bolletary Tennis Academy in Florida. And oh. it was really hard to do that, but I did it because I wanted to chase a dream and turn the dream into a goal and turn the goal into a reality. And right. so I went down to Florida and spent three and a half years there, but then wanted to come back and graduate with my friends, spent my last six months here of high school, and then went to the University of Tennessee on a tennis scholarship. But if I didn't go to Balteri's, I would have struggled because there's not, there wasn't enough there wasn't enough of what I needed in the tennis landscape this far out to pursue what I wanted to try to pursue. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was tough, but I wouldn't look at my life, man. I've gotten to do what I love my whole life. I mean, I've, I've, I'm a tennis lifer, but I love it. They pay me to watch tennis matches now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, how comical is that? Right. <laughs> that. And did you know that's from an early age that you right knew there. you were going to like have this success? Or is there ever a moment that smacked you in the face when you were like in this fury of doing all these things, well, this chaos, where you like, oh, this is this is what's going to happen? Well, my parents believed in me a lot, and that helped. My mother was a hard char- is a hard charger. My dad was a stern, more cerebral guy, but they both believed in me. But three really key people were my brother, who traveled with me on the pro tour and coached me since I was a really since I was 17, 18, wow. and he's always been my rock. He's amazing. He's really quiet, never got enough credit, but he's one of the best coaches on the planet, and, and without him, I never would have d- done what I did on any aspect. Um, the other two people are Nick Boletari himself, who um, at his academy got me better by being a really good motivator. And the other person is my college coach, the late, great Mike DePalmer Sr., who with my brother coached me. And Coach DePalmer was really the first one that kind of was like, you're going to be a great tennis player. And and never had a doubt of me, never. I mean, I went to college, and I was ranked eight, you know, 18 in the country. And in my first year in college, I was ranked 47 in the United States in college tennis. The next year, I was ranked two. And the next year, I was wow. ranked one. And then two months later, after I was ranked one, I was in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. And that was a yeah. lot because of him and my brother. Wow. I mean, I had to do it, but there's a lot of moments where you can kind of go, what am I doing? When you walk uh, under the archways onto center court at Wimbledon for the first time, and you walk out there, and you're a kid from East Hampton, New York, it's pretty tough to just play yeah <laughs> yeah yeah wow but it's pretty cool incredible i love it and now you've been here. lucky man i've been ride. lucky and now i get to hang out with you guys and now your career and is at the low, wedding now your career is at the lowest point of its possible state where you're at our podcast <laughs> this is awesome you're at rock Three bottom bombs. this is so awesome and i'm so proud of myself because i've avoided your bar 
Yeah. yeah. The whole villain. time, this whole I've episode, an hour and change, he still right. avoided the bar. Awesome. At an arm's reach. Mm-hmm. I did A lot not. of discipline there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot of discipline. Don't worry. Discipline Sher- from Coach Sherman Anna sprinkled some there. stuff in your drink. There you go. I like it. Yeah. We can, we can, we can, <laughs> we can always spice it up. I like it. Incredible. What's going to happen mm-hmm. with the live tour, you guys? Come on, tell me. This is why I came here. I wanted you guys mm-hmm. to tell me if it's, is it going to survive? Is it not going to survive? I mean, is I think gonna... there's too much money and influence and players mm-hmm. involved now for it. Originally, when I first heard about the idea, we all joked about it. We, we've been doing this podcast this entire mm-hmm. year every week. So the transition that yeah. we've heard, you've heard us talk about it, everybody can listen back to our podcast and notice the transition of, okay, the first episode when we first heard about it, eh, okay, our energy was like, oh, okay, what's this going to be? Second time, second week, oh, okay. Well. Now I'm like, yeah. holy shit, they're about to take Cam Smith or rumors or whatever, yeah. and now there's all these and, announcers, and it, like, yeah, yeah, it's serious. This and, is a real thing. And their progression, too, over the first couple of events that they've had, they've really improved the quality and adapted and... We talked so about. So you guys the, are watching. You guys are viewing. Is that yes. a big fan of the, the yeah, camera yeah. angles? He was saying production-wise, it's way more it's, entertaining. It's very than PGA. exciting. I mean, it's YouTube TV, mm. but I was watching it on a seventy-inch TV, and it's very exciting golf. I think there you have that legacy of the Open, seeing the Claret Jug and those you know, those soft-spoken announcers. You've got Faldo. They're all whispering. And, you know, setting the stage for the drama. But then you have on the other side, you have this kind of more, um, you know, hard rock. Stephen A. Smith. Yeah. Yeah, Stephen A. Smith. And and like Skip Bayless, (laughs) like everybody's yelling and fun, having fun with each other. And Live Live Tour needs to get Stephen A. Smith next. Stephen A. with David Faraday would be a dynamite (laughs) combo. (laughs) They'd kill each other. They wouldn't last a day in the booth. (laughs) There's not enough Advil in my cabinet. (laughs) Stephen A. would use every word and. David would just. I don't think Stephen A. to his credit knows anything much about golf. I think that's not really his sport. I think he touches on it every once in a while. He could say it with passion. Oh yeah, sure. He he could a lot of passion brought. That's for sure. The emphasis and you know he would he could definitely bring some bring some some energy. Bring some energy. If somebody came up to you, Paul, and said, "Hey, we know you love tennis. You're a tennis guy, but we know you love golf too, and we'd like to pay you to comment on golf. Would you ever consider that too?" For the live tour, or just in general, just in general. But I guess now to. speaking about it, what about the I live would tour? Love to, I would, would you do it for the live tour? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't leave my current role. I, right. would, I wouldn't leave my current situation of my life as about as perfect as it could be. But I would love to. I, I, I love listening. I love listening to other announcers doing other sports too, because I, I learn a ton just from listening too. And you know, just like everything I else. I was going to ask, do you study that? Because obviously, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a podcaster. This is my yeah. life. I'm into this stuff too. I always want to wonder as a broadcaster. Yeah, yeah in that I do. Sense, and the know? biggest thing that I found out is you, it's subjective. You, you like who you like. You know, I mean, there's certain people that I love to listen to, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. But there's some really prominent announcers that I just doesn't do it for me so so it is really subjective but i love to listen you know i mean i love to watch tnt and watch ernie and charles and shack and you know they're so great their dynamic is great i mean it's uh it's it's amazing they're all ragging on each other doing pranks and joking and having the best time yeah it's it's fun and and you know it's fun and it's educational and so but but yeah i do watch and listen 
I was going to say, too, the Mets, like, even watching the Mets games. That's why I'm having such a good time watching the Mets just this year off how they're winning and, and watching Keith Hernandez and these guys just announce so perfectly. They don't care. There is no filter. They're they're ragging on umps. They're doing that's this. They're talking hard. about that. That is a fun... That's that, hard, man. I'm telling you, that's one thing at the beginning when I started. I was, you know, Because they pay you for your opinion. Well, you know, baseball's you, hard, too, because you got 162 yeah, fucking games. Don't, that's don't, a lot of games. Don't even get me into it. I used to love <laughs> baseball. I can't deal with it anymore. I start watching baseball when the U.S. Open tennis starts, which is at the end of August. <laughs> right. That's when I start. <laughs> you, get about a month. <laughs> you get about a month, and then you're in playoffs. Yeah, I mean, the, the World Series ends the first week of November, second week. I, I get to see two and a half months of baseball. I mean, when yeah. people start talking about baseball in January, I'm ready. I'm like, wasn't the World Series last week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's right. like I, I, I can't. So care. I, I love baseball. I just can't care for 162 games. I, I don't. It's tough. I, yeah. and I wonder how anyone. I'm one, a very dear Too friend much. of mine. It's a really good uh, Dodgers fan. He loves it, and I'm. I don't even know what place anyone's in yet. I know the Yankees are doing great, and and but I just, I can't care that long. I mean, I, I'm a huge NBA fan, and I'm struggling with 82 80 something, yeah. yeah, 80 games, yeah. And this this is my first year that I haven't really gotten into the NBA this year, and I'm trying to figure out what happened. But this is because I always I always watch NBA, but this year I didn't really watch very much, and I'm trying to figure out why. Well, you've been commentating all year. You've yes, been yeah. Busy year. You've been traveling. Oh, you're working very sure hard these days. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> well, then no, commentating is no easy boat, right? I mean, it's not as easy as no, coaching, I'm sure. No, or, it's, or, it's, you know, it, or it's no, easier it, than coaching. No, I mean, no. But... If you do your homework, you got to do some work, but. I guess I'm spending more time doing that. I'm sure as hell not spending enough time on the golf course. Clearly, by the mm. way, I'm playing these days, Zach. So oh, that's got to change. Your game's looking good. That's got to change. Your game's looking good. What tips would you give for Paul for his game right now, Zach? What would you give his number one tip? What's his number um, one golf tip? Well, last time we played, Paul was experimenting with putting, looking at the hole from long range. And he went midway through the round to kind of more of a feel where he just had his right elbow tucked into his side and i like that a lot can we, I have a, I have can a we blame steve for the yeah. for the look at oh the whole thing? yeah my yeah steve steve's a great coach he throws a lot of stuff out there but i don't think this one didn't didn't hit the board i'm blaming steve Uh-oh. steve steve uh, you're on steve. the hook steve Steve, if you're um, listening <laughs> your drinks are you're on a great you. coach you've given me so much advice that uh has really helped me but Looking at the hole from thirty feet, he was just trying know. to appease me. Steve, just realize that when you polish a turd, it's still a turd, <laughs> and that would be me. And friend. Steve's punishment <laughs> is having to give Ryan one free lesson. Oh yes, that's his punishment. So, yep. Welcome, Steve, to my world. Fix all, <laughs> all my right. game. You have a lot to start on. So, it's all coming back to coaching and being a good coach. And I think we're sitting with one of the greater coaches of the tennis world and Paul Anacone. And we appreciate you coming on today and giving us all of your time and giving us all this wisdom because I think that we were long overdue. Oh my gosh. So many great things that we can apply here from comparisons made, golf, tennis. It's very, very similar in a lot of the ways you've talked about the mentality. and, um, And it's been an absolute pleasure. Gents, I can't thank you guys enough. And uh, I just want to know when I can come back and finish your bar. Yeah. 
Any any time. Next time, podcast I'm, studios I'm, open tomorrow I'm, morning. I'm bringing the, I'm bringing the ice. <laughs> we have some orange juice somewhere. And my yeah. biggest cocktail glass, and I will be here with bells on. Oh, perfect. Wow. Love thanks, it. thanks so Can't much, you guys. Wait. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on, and and we really appreciate it. We really anytime, do. anytime at all. You're the Cheers. best. Yeah, I'm a I'm a massive sports nut, so to get to hear some stories about someone that's been there and, and seen a little bit of everything, it's been really really cool. Absolutely, agreed. Well, Paul, we appreciate you coming on. We're the guys from Good Lines Golf. <laughs>